As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Hey. Hey. (laughs) I'm super jazzed. Uh, We've had some recent changes in our household that have led to a lot more darts. Yes. And I'm excited about that. We've been playing a lot of darts lately. Um, We had family game night last night. We played some video pinball. Yes. Uh, played some Jeopardy. We were in a self-imposed isolation. Yeah. Like probably you are. And uh, so we decided to uh, to play some games last night and yeah. it was we, fun. We shouldn't say probably you are. We should say maybe you are. Yeah. Because maybe you're someone who has to work during this time and I feel really sad and I get it and I apologize and I, I don't mean to sound like I'm being, uh, you know, braggarty with my dart playing. Sure. Uh, we heard a great Great uh, thing this morning. The I think the director of Maine CDC uh, was talking about hand washing and mm-hmm. how you shouldn't be uh, complacent about your hand washing. He meant he means when he says hand washing, he means vigorous hand washing. And he said, think of it like this: you just chopped up a bunch of jalapenos, and now you have to change your contact lenses. <laughs> Do that hand washing in between. Yeah. So uh, that was great. But we decided, you know, what can we do in this time? So. The only thing that we can do is uh, what we can do, right. which I now sound stupid. And but. What, what we can do and what we decided to do, we're going to do an extra episode this week. Um, we're planning on dropping an extra episode, not just for our premium members. We've got a bonus episode coming up just for them, too. But uh, this one will be for everybody, and it'll drop Friday. Yay! We have no idea what it's going to be, nope. but... I don't even know the structure of it. Is it going to be like a regular episode? Who knows? Like our bonus episodes normally on the premium site are very free form. We just, you know, drink heavily and chatter about stuff. Right. Um, maybe it'll have a little more structure than that, but we'll see. You'll find out Friday. Eh. Yeah. We're on this ride together, you and us. Whee! Well, I've got a story for you now. I love a story. In the summer of 2010, it was... Up until that point, illegal to keep bees in New York City. The urban beekeeping ban was in effect. I did not know about this. 
and they lifted it. Hipsters did some amazing things, and this is one of the things I'm really grateful for. <laughs> yes. Urban beekeeping, I'm into it. So many people began keeping bees on the rooftops of their buildings yes. in New York. There was one couple in the Brooklyn area that started noticing something very strange after they began their beekeeping experiment. All the bees were wearing flannel. Wow, you ruined my story. I'm sorry. The New York Times reported that bees in Brooklyn started turning red. What? Bees became, they were like red. So Brooklyn beekeepers, when they started noticing this, they obviously did a little investigating and they realized it wasn't just their bees, but the honey that they were producing was also Red. So what's different about what bees have access to in Brooklyn than what bees have access to elsewhere? Oh, you're getting ahead of me. I'm sorry. The keepers could see the red goo, and so they checked the hives, and the crimson honey looked an awful lot like coagulated blood. The bees were returning to their hives with this bright red substance showing through the membrane of their stomachs, and then producing this crimson-colored weird honey. I feel like you're being a little sensational right now because I know bees don't want your blood. It's too bitter. They want something sweet. <gasps> Sir, Wait, is there some sort of population of sweet-blooded people in Brooklyn? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Cerise Mayo, one of the beekeepers, told the New York Times, quote, I thought maybe it was coming from some sort of weird tree. Of course, bees will forage for anything sweet, any kind of sweet liquid mm. that's in their flight path up to three miles. Did you know that? I did not know Three that. miles they'll fly. That's according to Andrew Cody uh, of the New York City Beekeepers Association. I know that when I'm playing Stardew Valley, uh, fairy rose honey is one of the most valuable <laughs> things that I can sell. But uh... okay. yeah. That and bug meat. You know that that's not accurate. So you're on the right the right path here. <gasps> I was? The right track. What is it that bees in the city have access to that's sweet that wouldn't be readily available to bees in the countryside? Well, there was a huge bus service depot a block away from the hive, mm -hmm. and it was full of transmission fluid and antifreeze. <gasps> Both liquids, of course, contain ethylene glycol, which is a sweet, poisonous chemical. And right. that's why you should never leave antifreeze anywhere near your dog, where the, your dog can get it. If you spill it, make sure you clean it up very, very carefully. So they were they started to think, could it be possible that the bees were, were feeding on poisonous chemicals from the depot? Nobody knew at the time. But antifreeze is green. Or is it not exclusively green? I don't know that much about antifreeze. I, w I will admit this to you now. There's probably red antifreeze. Okay. Um, now, of course, local honey, it's an amazing thing if you live in a fresh meadow or a mountaintop somewhere. Sure. But in the city, there are houses and factories and built-up areas. Local honey in uh, New York from beehives in gardens on top of high buildings are located near dustbins, factories, cars, of course. Who knows what kind of substance the bees were feeding on? Is it beer that was spilt on the street or discarded juice running out of the uh, the dumpsters? That seems like a lot of discarded juice. Brake fluid, antifreeze. So the beekeepers joined together to find someone to figure out exactly what was going on. What is this red blood kind of gunk the bees were churning out into their honey? So they brought in an apticulturist who analyzed the stuff and found something that astonished him. The honey contained 
high concentrations of red dye number 40 and high fructose corn syrup. Oh my gosh. It turned out that the urban bees, after the ban was lifted, were hitting the corn syrup at Dell's Maraschino Cherry Factory, <laughs> owned by Arthur Mondella, located directly across the river from the beehives. I love it. <laughs> they were astonished. People were astonished that the bees were flying all the way across the river and raiding the uh, Maraschino Cherry Factory. Hey, if I was a bee, I'd cross a river for Maraschino Cherries. Unfortunately, it didn't really add anything to the honey flavor. If anything, it took away. It just, it tasted awful. Sure. It was just terrible. But let's let's talk about maraschino cherries just for a moment. They're not as popular now as they used to be. They're, That's because they're terrible. Yeah. Well, they're chemically treated. High fructose corn syrup is added. Potassium sorbate, sodium benzoate, artificial flavor, red dye number 40, sulfur dioxide, and much more. Now, these... Really, they're only around because they're they're like a relic from the 1950s cocktail cu- uh, culture. Maraschino cherries have zero nutritional value, or very little. Maybe they have some, but but very little. But they were very popular in the 50s for cocktails. You know, you see pictures of like. I don't know, somebody drinking, well, even a Shirley Temple, a non-alcoholic cocktail has maraschino cherries in it. So Dell's factory supplied maraschino cherries to Red Lobster, Buffalo Wild Wings, TGI Fridays, and Chick-fil-A, among others. Maraschino cherries aren't in demand, but they pretty much made them for everybody. Got it. Dell is your maraschino cherry guy. Well, the company was named Dell. Arthur was the guy who named, who owned the company. Arthur Dell. Mandela. Oh, Mandela. I bet they called him Dell for short. Maybe that was it. Yep. Maybe it was. Because he was a third generation owner. Oh, yeah. His grandfather had started it in the 40s. Oh, yeah. Grandfather from the 40s was absolutely called Dell. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. According to On Earth, uh, when Brooklyn's beekeepers found out about the bees' corn syrup habit, they contacted a guy named Andrew Cody, who was the president of the New York City Beekeepers Association, and Vivian Wang, a beekeeper and advocate with the Natural Resources Defense Council. Now, they went to the uh, factory to pay them a visit. NRDC. We have their return address labels because I give them money. Oh, is that one of the many causes that you donate to? Because <laughs> we get so much mail from... So many return so address many labels. With, with nickels in them. <laughs> so anyway, the pair goes to the factory. They make an appointment to meet with Arthur Mandela to look for solutions to the red bee problem. And he was just the sweetest little guy, mm. the sweetest little man. He, it turned out that he, he found that the factory's processes had a, had a weak link. There was a short period when the bins of maraschino cherries need to be transported from one warehouse to another. And what they found was just a small leak. And all it takes, Wang said, is uh, for one bee to find some remnants of syrup. Mm. And then she'll be back at the hive telling all of her buddies about it. And they yeah. communicate, of course, with little dances. We, we all learned that in school. Once enough bees are on the scent, it's impossible to stop them. So Arthur Mandela, he's concerned that people are going to think his product is contaminated. And he, he had a reputation for being a great neighbor. And so he worked with them. Yeah. They tried a number of solutions, including shrink wrapping the bins to keep the bees out, but to no avail. Wang and Cody offered up some other ideas. 
Several possible ideas could help keep bees away from the syrup. Draping the syrup bins with heavy fabric sheets soaked in vinegar might work. That's according to Cody. Uh, the vinegar would help mask the syrup smell without harming either the bees or the cherries. Other possible strategies, they were thinking about uh, wooden and mesh lockers on wheels to transport the bins and, and also placing feeders full of um, sugar syrup on the top of the factory roof to distract the bees oh, yeah. from it. So the story gets out, the red bee syndrome. They figure out what it's all about. The media kind of goes wild. They want to find out all the details. Of course, they've labeled it the red bee phenomenon, you know, because, well, sure. that's what the media does. So factory owner and beloved Brooklyn businessman Arthur Mandela was overrun with media. And interestingly, he refused to do any interviews. Now, it, that seemed odd to people because he was an entrepreneur mm -hmm. and usually... What do they say? There's no such thing as bad press or something, yeah. you know, whatever it is. It's all good uh, in the long run. And even if he was concerned that it was it was going to damage the reputation of the um, of the of the cherries, you would think that he would want to insert himself into the story right. to manage any potential damage. It may have even turned out to be a good good publicity for him. I mean, he he was well liked and he had worked with these people to solve the problem. Right. And I mean, come on, the maraschino cherry industry can't exactly be booming, but. <laughs> So fast forward a few years, the highly publicized red bee phenomenon and their love for cherry syrup had drawn the attention of the New York District Attorney Kenneth Thompson, who had promised to clean up the industrial neighborhood where the uh, cherry factory was located. He began looking into open environmental infractions. He was concerned that maybe it wasn't just leaking from canisters being transported from one warehouse to another, that maybe they were illegally dumping... Oh, cherry waste. Cherry waste. The investigation into improper dumping and sewage usage from the uh, cherry factory led investigators from at least three different agencies, including the New York Police Department, to uh, knock on Dell's factory door one day in 2015. What they found was not what they expected. Behind a false wall in the factory, they discovered a 2,500-square-foot hydroponic marijuana farm. Shit. A garage full of vintage cars, 130000 in cash. Dell! And a copy of the book, quote, The World Encyclopedia of Organized Crime. Oh. So they're in there. They find this false wall. They start uncovering. No wonder Dell was so chill. <laughs> they started uncovering this hidden grow operation. Police say the 2,500 square foot LED lit equipped space could have fit thousands of marijuana plants at a time with hundreds of pounds of prepackaged products, suggesting that uh, Mandela had done just that. So he sees them. He comes out with them and, and he's walking around. He sees that they have discovered his false wall. Mm hmm. So he excused himself, went to the bathroom, pulled out a 357 that he kept holstered on his ankle and killed himself. No! Yes. What? That's a big reaction. Beekeeper uh, Tim O'Neill from the uh, neighborhood who knew Arthur said it was a terrible situation. He had been instrumental in solving the red honey dilemma. This is what he told the New Yorker. He was a good neighbor. We all live in a community together. Who cares if some dude is gro growing marijuana? It's practically legal anyway. This was in For 2015. And, and I don't know what the laws are in New York now. This 2015, it, medicinal was, was legal, but recreational was not. He went on to say, I'm sure he was putting out a good product. 
I'm shocked the situation turned out so badly. So after Mandela's death, investigators pretty much dropped their investigation into the uh, expansive underground garden. Thompson charged the company with, quote, criminal possession of marijuana in the first degree, which is a felony, and uh, with failing to comply with laws relating to wastewater dumping. Uh, That was a misdemeanor. The Dell factory pleaded guilty on both charges, paid the uh, $1.2 million fine, and just kind of moved on with business. In the wake of the unsuspected discovery and the unfortunate uh, death at Dell's Maraschino Cherry Company, Mandela's daughters, Dominique and Dana, have taken over the family business. They've expanded the size and the amount of the cherries offered. Um, They've streamlined new forms of production and uh, are continuing their father's generosity and compassion toward the local uh, neighborhood. So, you know, he was looking at some jail time, but how much jail? This is so sad. It seemed like a pretty... uh, This was a real fun story. Until the end. I know. I'm sorry about that. The question is why? Why would he... I mean... Sure, he was going to be doing some jail time, but it's not like, what was the deal there? Well, another article I read said that at the funeral, there were a lot of mafia guys there. Oh, maybe he was Something, in with... I, there was some speculation, I but I, you know, there's no evidence of that. Maybe he was just really sad because it had been his family's company and he thought maybe he was... Maybe. Sullying the family name. Mm. I mean, I guess there's any number of theories. That's real, real sad. Where are the pugs? (laughs) All righty. Sorry. Should I just have left that last part out? Yep. Okay. And the B problem was solved. The end. And now, that thing in the middle. Here are some weird... Italian expressions that we'll probably butcher because we don't speak Italian. Sorry. Sorry. Number five. In bocca al lupo, which means in the mouth of the wolf. I guess Italians have a very interesting way of wishing you luck. And that's inviting you to get eaten by a wolf. Um, To which the other person must respond, crepe il lupo, the wolf shall die. I like that. I mean, except for the wolf dying part. Right. Number four. Un altro paio de maniche. Another pair of sleeves. This expression is used when the second time you have to do something is easier than the first time you have to do something. So, like, it's thought the the expression comes from in medieval times when women's clothing had replaceable sleeves. So Really? Yeah. Basically, saying something is easy, doing it a second time is going to be easier. That's another pair of sleeves. Number three. A pide libero. On a free foot. This uh, refers to people who are on bail awaiting sentencing. The expression was used in medieval times when prisoners were forced to have their feet cuffed. It also refers to an escaped prisoner who is now a pedo libero. Number two, prendere un granchio, to catch a crab. This means that the end result of something is a lot crappier than you had originally expected. <laughs> like you put a lot of work in and then the end is like, oh. Number one, Ogne Morte de Papa, which means every time the Pope dies. Now, that sounds pretty weird, but it does make some sense. Italians use this expression to refer to something that happens with very little frequency. So like once in a blue moon. Yeah, it, exactly. That's the, the type of thing. Every time the Pope dies. I'm going to try to work that in. The Box of Oddities with Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. 
This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura Frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the Aura Frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Box of Oddities. It's not for everyone. I found this message on the Freaks A Box of Oddities group. Jody Wells wrote, Went grocery shopping today, in line to check out, 
and my friend called me a freak. Loudly, I said, yes, I fly my freak flag. When we hear from another line, fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. All I could do was squeal and cry out, I love you, Cat and Jethro. And freak in the other line, I love you too. Well, we love you, Jody. That's GD amazing. You have no idea how much that means That's to us. That's incredible. We love stories like that. It gives me goose bumps. Goose brumps, which is how they used to say it in the old country. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Back, you know, my grandfather, Augustus, used to say goose brumps. Mm-hmm. I've heard um, it both ways. Yeah. Anyway, what you got for me? All right. Tiwanaku, or in Spanish, Tiwanaku, is a pre-Columbian archaeological site in western Bolivia near Lake Titicaca. And it's one of the largest sites in South America. So Tiwanaku can be found at an approximately an altitude of 12,500 feet. Wow. And the the word Tiwanaku is kind of interesting because it refers to a city, a site, and a culture. Oh, really? And so this city and site were uh, rediscovered. by European explorers in the 19th century. So Tiwanaku was one of the most significant Andean civilizations. Its influence extended into present-day Peru and Chile and lasted from around 550 to 1000 CE. Its Its capital was Tiwanaku, which was an ancient archaeological complex which is now designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Archaeological evidence has pointed to the existence of a more modern city, but uh, they do see that there is more ancient uh, ruins uh, that were constructed mostly of adobe. So you can find temples and structures traced back to various periods, uh, remains of the Pyramid of Acapana, which once incorporated seven platforms in its structure and reached a height of nearly 60 feet. That's incredible. That's 60 feet. That would be three stories high, right? Oh, I don't know. A story is about 20 feet. Okay, never mind. Hush. Nearby is the Calasasia. The Calasasia is a low platform mound with a large courtyard. It's surrounded by high stone walls, the edges of which are aligned with the cardinal directions. And the Calasasia dates back to at least 200 BCE. Now, this is according to Wikipedia. Uh, the Calasasia is surrounded by several stone structures and monoliths, including the Gate of the Sun. That's perhaps the most significant remnant of ancient Tiwanaku art. Oh, I've heard of this. The Gate of the Sun, I've heard about this. Yeah. This is interesting stuff. I thought you might like it. I love this stuff. So the Gate of the Sun is a megalithic solid stone arch or gateway. Archaeological evidence at the site suggests that it was built between 500 and 950 CE. But archaeologists are uncertain of its exact age and size. So as I said, it's a single stone, but it's roughly 9.8 feet tall, 13 feet wide, and it weighs nearly 20,000 pounds. Holy crap. On this arch are carved designs, and uh, the center of which is like this little figure. Uh, It looks kind of dude-ish, and 
there's some marks on the face. There's some rays of sun coming from him. Um, Some researchers have posited that the sculpture was symbolic of a calendar year. Um, Now, that would seem odd now compared to our current timekeeping standards. But at that time, each month was 24 days for 12 months of the year. And that amounted to 290 days a year. Though the carvings that decorate the gate may be astronomical and or astrological, there have been various modern interpretations of the inscriptions found on the object. Ooh, tell me, please. So this is according to... It has to, to do with aliens, doesn't it? Does it? Does it have... Is it aliens? This is according to boredom therapy. Andean legend has it that Lake Titicaca was the home of the planet's first humans. Yes! For- Aliens. No, no, no one's saying that um, at this moment during this podcast. Okay. Furthermore, the Tiwanaku culture claimed that Tiwanaku was chosen by their creator as the center of creation. So some historians believe that the central figure on that gate or that arch is, is him. Other historians have connected the mysterious figure to the sun god as his face appears to be surrounded by those 24 straight rays of light. Right, right. Um, He's also been referred to as the weeping god because it looks kind of like he might be crying. Um, but I think of when I see the image, it looks to me like he's got um, like when football players uh, want to protect their eyes from sun from reflecting. The glare, yeah. Yeah. Right. It looks like he's got that on. So Cool. That's probably more likely it that he played football. I think I might I might add that into my look. Just make it a fashion thing. Kind of like uh n- was it Nelly did it with the band-aid? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. do that. No, I'm no. not gonna do that. All right. Uh, when I was a kid though, I um I tried to invent my own superhero. Oh. And um I used black electrical tape and I put it under my eyes. That was my look. Oh wow. Yeah. Was this around the time that the train conductor look was becoming popular? No, it was it was prior to that. Oh god. Okay. Yeah, a couple okay. years before that. Sure. I never came up with a name for my superhero, but I had the look down. Oh wow. I remember sitting in my bedroom looking in the mirror, sitting there on the edge of my bed in my underpants. Uh, with electrical tape underneath my eyes, holding a cap gun, thinking, I look cool. Well, you've always had the look. You know, that's that's not something that... I just realized... You're, just, you're all... so pretty. <laughs> you're so pretty. I just realized that all of that was out loud. <laughs> so this figure is also flanked by 48 winged fig... Why can't I talk today? This character uh, is also flanked by 48 winged figures that uh, are sometimes interpreted as like god messengers. Some of these figures have heads of condors where some of them have human-like heads. And some people have described the objects on their heads to look like helmets Mm. or some sort of space gear. Now, obviously, you expect me to say that, well, there you go. It's aliens. But no, no. What I'm going to say this time is, isn't it interesting that uh, in ancient Egypt, they had similar depictions of humans with animal heads? Mm -hmm. Like Horus, the god of death, had the jackal head. Was it a jackal? Yeah, I think it was a jackal. Seems right. Yeah. And they both built pyramids. 
That's true. And they're both roughly on the same latitude. I don't know if that's true, but it would be cool if it was. No, I think you're right. Okay. I think there is something to be said for the latitude of some of the world's major archaeological ruins, especially in pyramid form. I remember seeing something about that. Anyway, I can't speak to it. I'm just going to... Okay. Archaeologists have done a lot of work studying water levels and where they were in the past by studying the striations and other markings in soil and rocks. And they use these methods uh, to determine that Tiahuanaco, uh, which now sits about 800 feet above sea level, was once a port city surrounded by Lake Titicaca. And uh, the lake is now about 12 miles away from the site. But in the past, it was much larger. And the Gate of the Sun is thought to maybe be like the entrance into that port city. But no one has been able to uncover its true purpose. Like, there are a lot of theories out there. But one of the puzzling things about the Gate of the Sun is the fact that it is very precisely carved, even though the people who made it only had hand tools. Again, very similar to uh, the Egyptian pyramids and right, right. such. This led some ancient astronaut theorists. They say yes. <laughs> All the time. (laughs) Who believe that uh, cultures uh, more advanced than ours that come from other worlds visited the planet regularly during a specific time in history and suggest that these ancient aliens played a part in creating the gate and Mm -hmm. the civilization. Mm -hmm. Lake Titicaca, first of all, it's fun to say. It's good fun. It's a, a very interesting archaeological site. And I remember reading... Not long ago, what what is the uh, the place Machu Picchu? Machu Picchu, that those cultures high in the Andes, mm. um, where there are a lot of legends there about, like you were saying, this is where the first people came from. There are those who think that they may have been survivors from the deluge, the well, basically the sinking of Atlantis or mm. the destruction of Atlantis. I read an interesting theory about how Atlantis is really Antarctica, that it uh, that the uh, the crust slipped maybe when the pole shifted or something. Oh. And it, it didn't really destroy the continent, but it did cover it in, in water to an extent and then buried in ice. But the, uh, the levels of the water were so high that places like Machu Picchu or Lake Titicaca, that area was an island in the middle of an ocean. Right. And that's where they scrambled to, the survivors from from the deluge. I, I think that that's interesting. I am obsessed with ancient maps and what the mm. world might have looked like at different periods in, in time. And the idea, like we were talking about in the last episode, that North Dakota used to be pretty much waterfront. Yeah. And, uh, and the, the concept that... Places where we know to be land, places where we have been, where we visited Ecuador, for instance, you know, used to be the bottom of the ocean. And (laughs) it's that's fascinating to me. And the idea that we can uncover so much in those places um, because of those those earth changes and what we might learn from that. I just I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I remember the first time I went for a walk in the uh, Sonoran Desert in Arizona. Mm. And it was a part of the desert that was somewhat barren. There, were, there weren't a lot of cacti and, and mesquite trees and things like that. And I remember thinking, this is probably what it looks like on the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Just flat and desolate. <laughs> 
anyway, there you go. Wow. A little ancient alien business for you. Thanks because for the ancient. I love you. I know. Yeah. I know. I know it pains you to do that. <laughs> Thank you so much. You truly do love me. Yeah. And we truly love you guys. And we're hoping that you're taking care of yourself. And again, because so many people are kind of locked down for a while, we are going to produce an extra episode this week. And we're planning on it dropping Friday, probably Friday night, something like that. If we can take the time from our intense dark playing. Yeah, which reminds me, you're leading me two games to one, so we need to get back at it. Looking forward to seeing you on Friday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak, and yell it out in grocery store lines. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Suck at winning. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.